you know, life is not going to come to a standstill if I don't agree with you. Or, like real you know, love. Like, look, I got to know the person. <laughs> gay marriage, gay rights, homosexuality. My opinion is, um, like, empathy. I guess I have an opinion. Empathy. They don't call you pickles like, anymore? Someone asked, what, what yeah. is it like to lose your dad? Well, it's kind of like the railing on the porch. Like, if she, if she hadn't had an aide in the classroom, she wouldn't have been able to change my life forever. There's good in all kids. Mm-hmm. There's good in Getting to know somebody, thinking the thoughts of the other might yes. be a hugely healing thing. I got death penalty, I got universal exactly health care, taxes, Confederate right monuments, oh, oh my God. political <laughs> Thank you on behalf of all humanity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you on behalf of all humanity. <laughs> Welcome to Like You, where I talk to real people about their lives, what they believe, and why they believe it. My name is John Zelson. Subscribe on any podcast service or listen from the website at likeyoupodcast.org. This is episode seven. It's the third and last part of my conversation with Emma. If you haven't listened to the previous parts, please do check them out in order. And as always, a reminder, this experiment in understanding each other it's about letting yourself absorb the life experience and worldview of another person. Please enjoy part three of Emma. I want to recap on something. I want to know um, the jobs you have and the and the major volunteer work. So I know you you do doula work, and I know you work uh-huh. in the abortion clinic. And I know you're a teacher, and I know you're a legal advisor, a legal observer. Not a legal advisor. I am a legal observer, but that's not. So the the paid work that I do is I teach fifth grade in a public school in Detroit. I um, also work at a different public school for after school, um, also in southwest Detroit. Um, and then I work at the clinic, which is a women's health clinic. We don't just do um, Yeah, abortion. I was thinking that was a bad idea. Um, it's no, not, it's it, okay, but I don't mind saying abortion clinic. There are also abortions provided there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like like all spaces that serve women, as far as I know, we also do other things. Um, and then in addition to that, my fourth job. Oh, I'm also the ed faculty for a Jewish service organization called Repair the World. Um which uh, comes from the uh, like Jewish tradition of tikkun olam, which is just like you know trying to make things better and um, yeah. So those are my paid jobs, and then the volunteer work that I do um, or put the most energy into is uh, I'm a legal observer for the National Lawyers Guild. So that involves like um, going to protests and observing um, the police and other law enforcement. Um, in situations where people, um, particularly protesters, are arrested, um, just to make sure that you know people are um, one that law enforcement is following the law, um, and two to make sure that people who are being arrested are connected with um, support for bail and um, and you know future legal support as well. Um, and then I also, uh, like I said, I recruit and train. Um, clinic escorts who um, help people to get in and out of the clinic and past protesters, um, which actually, 
uh, those things like inform each other a lot. It's been, I've learned so much. So I also like um, do community organizing around a lot of different uh, things. And so it's been really interesting being at, um, being in positions where I am observing protests mm-hmm. um, because you learn so much, or I have learned so much about what are uh, like successful tactics look like. And, um, and then I can kind of like, use that too and I'm trying to get past protesters like with escorting and so it's just like it's really interesting because you know before I started legal observing I was organizing protests or participating in them um and so it's like really really different to be there and you know as a legal observer you absolutely cannot participate in what's going on you can't even do like little like woo-woos if you agree with something like Mm -hmm. you are just there to observe and you're there to be impartial and it's like very, very important um, to the work that you do that you maintain that impartiality, um, which like being impartial is a huge struggle for me. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, but I've learned so much just from like having to stand back and be like, all right, I'm at this protest, but I'm not protesting. I'm not organizing the protest. I'm just here to like observe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been really interesting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> those, are the major, those are the major things I do. I'm trying to think what else, what other volunteer work I do. Um, I think that's, those are, those are the things I spend the most time on. So you have this really rough childhood Mm. and then, um, you somehow turn it into where you're taking that energy and making some good stuff happen. I mean, you talk, you, you, four jobs, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and you teach and you talk about, uh, community, you talk about education as being a place where you care about everybody's kids. And mm-hmm. um, I feel like I'm talking to a super, superhero <laughs> and I have this <laughs> creation myth, you know, like that, that tough childhood is like this, this, uh, this source of energy, uh, the source of mm-hmm. power that, um, that propels you. Uh, and it, it just, and even like the way you do the doula work and you work at an abortion clinic. These things that are, it's almost literary and mythological and how they're, they're the opposite and they're the same thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. How do you... I do mean, you superhero any... is over the top. But, <laughs> um, but I think I catch your meaning about like um, sort of taking energy that was um, maybe like negative or painful and trying to like turn it around into something else. Well, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be anybody else, but I think that it is tremendously motivating. Um, And especially, like, for myself, like, I've struggled so much with um, depression and um, suicidal ideation and all of that stuff that in order to um, feel hopeful or I just have to be really, like, present in my own life in a way that um, is, like is necessary in order for me to keep surviving. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, it's interesting to, like, try and integrate, like, honestly integrate, like, the past and, you know, my present and also the future that I'm working towards, right? Like, the a lot of times if your past is, like, kind of painful, like, the future is something that's, like, very motivating unless you're depressed and then the future is a dark hole of terribleness mm-hmm. um, it's unavoidable but um but I think that um that that it's interesting to meet people and hear them talk about their past 
especially like if someone has had a really positive past um, and hear about them wanting to like replicate that for their kids or for other people, you know, like my childhood is so fun and, and that's really wonderful. Um, and how you can kind of achieve the same thing if you have had like a, a past that you don't want to replicate for anyone else. Um, where it's like you have the example, which is really important and you have the non-example, which is also very important. Like it's very helpful to know what, you're not going to do, um, even if you don't know what you are going to do. And I think, like, for myself, that's always been something that's very confusing and kind of concerning is it's like, oh, man, I don't know if I have the examples of, you know, who, who I want to be or, or how I want to show up or um, how to do this thing correctly, you know? Like, maybe I, I don't know the right way to go through college or maybe I don't know, like, how to have a family. And so like that can be really overwhelming, but um, I also do know what not to do in a lot of ways. Um, and that is weirdly comforting. Like it's helpful to be like, all right, I don't know what I'm going to do. And there's going to be a fair amount of like flailing around in the dark, but I at least know not to do that, you know, um, yeah. which is helpful. And, you know, even with my students, sometimes I think they're like, oh, I don't know what to do or I don't know how to solve this. And I think the best place to come from when you're trying to problem solve is a place of like confidence and openness and vulnerability. And it can be hard to get someone there if they're feeling like downtrodden and, you know, incompetent. And um, so tapping into their knowledge, even if the knowledge is just like, okay, how do you definitely not solve this? Mm-hmm. Like you could be talking about like a math problem. <laughs> And, and there's still, like, a not, like, okay, I'm looking at this problem. Like, what's the operation? And they're like, okay, it's division. I'm like, okay, great. What are we definitely not going to do? They can be like, multiply or subtract, you know? Um, although, unfortunately, I have to do both of those things in one division. But maybe that's not a good example. But, um, but it is, like, everybody has at least, no matter what your experience, everybody at least has the non-example. And that's really powerful to have a non-example. Um, My, yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. But. Yeah, well, we talked about, um, I'm going to say, uh, mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. that seeing um, failure, seeing mistakes, I guess, uh, as mm-hmm. what they are, and that is like really important opportunities to learn stuff. Maybe that's my own coping mechanisms. I don't know if there's like an appropriate place to slide this in, but I do just want to mention that Rihanna, the pop singer, her very first tattoo um, is crossed her collarbone and it says, um, never a failure, always a lesson, which Mm -hmm. is neither here nor there, but which I think is really great (laughs) because a lot of our like public figures are so two dimensional um, and we don't, um, we don't really have like a, like a public space in which people are allowed to do what I think they do very naturally, which is like um, make mistakes and learn from them. People are certainly making a lot of mistakes, Mm -hmm. Um, but there isn't the space for them to like process them or receive feedback or be reflective at all. Right. I mean, it seems like the playbook is, you know, deny, deny, deny. (laughs) And then when you can't deny anymore, um, you know, come up with some justification or something. But there isn't like a, and that's just my impression. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that 
so much of uh, the way that we structure our society uh, <laughs> and our institutions seems to have very little bearing on the actual human experience, right? So we, like, expect people to kind of be perfect and not make mistakes, which, I, I mean, no one is like that. Yeah, like, at school, you're not supposed to make mistakes at school, even though that's how we all learn. We have these, like, zero-tolerance policies. And, you know, so it just seems like we don't have a lot of structures where – uh, not just that there is a space to make mistakes, but that we actually expect that that will happen. And that's like part of the process that we like plan for it. And there's like support in place for, for that to happen. In the public eye, um, mm-hmm. right. You don't see politicians go, good point. I'm changing my mind, you know, to their opponents. <laughs> exactly. And, um, <laughs> That'd be great. I, I, I believe it would be great. Although, there's something else that people blame politics and society on, but it might just be people. My life experience is that even individually, like like a lot of politics is mm-hmm. reflective. Uh, here's my proposal. It's reflective of mm-hmm. us crazy people, like interpersonally even, or at our jobs and our workplace. When someone comes in and gives a load of baloney that sounds good, a lot of people mm-hmm. want to follow that person. They want that kind of... Um, I, I hate that I'm putting it in a way that sounds so bad, but uh, mm. there's, a, there's a powerful trend to believe someone who steps up and says, I know the answer, you know, we got mm, this. Uh-huh. You know, it gives people some kind of assurance, even though maybe they, maybe they would really know that it, they're not, that person who's claiming to have the answer might not have the answer. I mean, that's like the con man game all over that's so successful, like, throughout time, right? Mm-hmm. What do you... Um, so I'm saying that this this idea that we're saying isn't sort of human. We all know it doesn't work that way on one hand. On the other way, it seems like so basically human. Like humans have fallen for mm. this over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely – we have so many examples of that. Um, we have some interesting contemporary examples of that perhaps, mm-hmm. even in our highest offices. <laughs> um, but <laughs> – um, but I also think that that is a product of conditioning. And so, like, this is, like, a, a great question of, like, nature versus nurture maybe. But I wonder, like, I wonder if that is really true more broadly. Like, I wonder if that's true outside of, like, Western societies. Or um, I wonder if there are spaces where um, that person, that like con man, or maybe not even like a con man, but just like someone who has a very confident opinion, mm-hmm. um, that like really narrow interpretation of, of leadership kind of, because I mean, that is like one interpretation of that is like, you know, the con man, but, but also the con man is just like uh, sort of putting on the mantle of, of what we consider a, a leader to have, right? So being confident, like having a clear message, mm-hmm. telling people what to do, um, you know, um, and being comfortable sort of like taking people's trust. Um, but I think that there are other interpretations of leadership, and we see like other structures that exist to support those other interpretations of leadership that maybe include more um, – you know, uh, critical thinking or like more participation or where that 
maybe wouldn't even look like leadership to another group of people. Right. Um, I'm just laughing. Yeah. Like I've thought a lot about leadership and like collaborative styles. Yeah. You try to make everyone feel good. You try, you, you spend time on relationships, you know, you, yes. it makes it so everyone feels free to say a problem because they know they're not going to get dinged and then you brainstorm on a solution and then you mm-hmm. like work through all your, you know, the, it seems sort of obvious if you're doing it, but people can look at it and think like, who's the boss? Here? Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. And they can also look at it and, you know, at first glance, they're like, oh, this looks dysfunctional, right? Like, just like you're saying, like, who's in charge? What's the hierarchy? Like, all of this other stuff. And, you know, one of the conversations that I've been having a lot recently um, with this group, so um, I work at the clinic, uh, the abortion clinic, but I also organize and recruit and train escorts who are volunteers who, you know, walk people from their car to the clinic and from the clinic to their car. And um, in creating this organization, um, there was a really divergent set of beliefs and principles that emerged between um essentially two groups of people. I'm certain there were other ideas as well, but they maybe didn't feel comfortable speaking out or like that whole environment just seemed um, maybe uninviting to other types of innovation. Um, But the way that I was able to sort of um, put it to myself or analyze it, it looked to me like one group was really interested in organizing around power and the other group was really interested in organizing around work. So the first structure is all about, like, president, vice president. Like, the vice president's job really is just to fill in for the president. If something happens to the president, (laughs) then, like, this person answers to that person. And there's, like, a clear hierarchy. And it's very much about, like, who is in control, um, who is, like, setting the tone or making the policy. And it has very little to do with the work. And this is a structure we see replicated everywhere um, that's, that's, (laughs) like, sometimes I think is very inappropriate, maybe always (laughs) inappropriate, Mm -hmm. but like is uh, effective or not effective kind of depending on a lot of different factors. Um, But to me, it had like, there was really no reason to, um, to apply that structure to the, the work we were trying to do, which was like pretty clear and specific. And, you know, it wasn't like a huge group of people. We have like, like 50 people or something like that. You know, it's like a smaller group and there are like, people who are very, very involved. And to me, it's kind of like, I have actually, to be perfectly honest, I have yet to encounter a situation where I feel like a president and vice president and secretary and, you know, Robert's <laughs> rules of order and all of this stuff is really very useful. Um, but, so I'm biased. But I also think that there's like something really beautiful that happens when people organize themselves around the work that needs to be done. And also when they organize themselves around like the work that they want to do. Um, And both of those things together, not like one or the other. Um, Because like in any organization, there are like tasks to do that maybe like aren't that exciting. And then there's like tasks to do that maybe uh, require like a specific uh, talent or, um, you know, that more people are interested in doing. Um, and then there's also just like, what makes people excited? You know, like, uh, maybe you have an idea and you're just like, I just want to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's great. Like I, to me, when you organize around power, um, you really limit, uh, the people participating, but also the things that you can do. Um, so it was interesting to watch it play out in this organization and, and we've, we've set out, unfortunately organized around power and we've like slowly started to move. Well, not even slowly, honestly, like 
add quite a clip. <laughs> we move closer and closer to organizing around work. Um, and, you know, organizing around work looks like, uh, you know, non-hierarchical. It looks horizontal. It looks like, um, you know, figuring out what work needs to be done um, and who is best positioned to do it and how we can work together to, like, you know, lessen the load and, you know, what sorts of things are, like, uh, require the whole group, you know, like visioning and coming up with a mission and things like that. Like you want everyone to be involved in those things and what things like one person can really just do by themselves and like the entire consensus process is not necessary. <laughs> um, but it's like, it just feels so much better. And actually, I just had a visitor to my classroom today, um, a friend of mine, and uh, she's like a lovely person whose um, opinion I really respect both in terms of things relating to education and just, like, in life. Um, and she was talking about how, like, in the classroom, she was really surprised that there isn't really, like, a hierarchy in my classroom, um, which isn't to say that, like, someone will walk in and be like, where's the teacher? Um, but, uh, but amongst the students, like, um, and I hadn't really thought about that, but there isn't really a hierarchy in my classroom. Like, we very much organize ourselves around um, the work that we have to do, and there's, like, a clear recognition of our you know, individual talents and things that people are interested in learning. And um, and that is, like, that is really cool. I hadn't really thought about it until she pointed it out. Um, but I'm, like, really glad that that's true. Like, uh, right now, one of the things that we're doing is I have a class pet who is a turtle. Um, <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought that turtles had a lifespan that was sort of similar to fish. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, this is a non-example in terms of pet ownership <laughs> uh, to do no research. So I, um, I was living in Brooklyn. I was about to move to Detroit to, um, to become a teacher. And um, I was walking uh, down 8th Avenue in Brooklyn, which um, is sort of like the Brooklyn Chinatown. There's great Chinese bakeries and just wonderful things going on there. And um, there was a man sitting on a three-legged stool selling tiny quarter-sized turtles out of a bucket, which now I have done more research, I'm pretty sure is illegal. But at the time, <laughs> I was like, oh, great. You know, I need a class pet. This will be awesome. And, so and you took I him from Brooklyn to Detroit. <laughs> I did, I did, but this turtle, it turns out, is going to live for like 40 years, so I think like a life partner, <laughs> and um, which, yeah, so now I know that, so we're in it for the long haul, but he's been getting bigger and bigger, and, uh, you know, he's going to grow to be a foot, by the way, he's going to be a foot long, so um, we're always problem solving about the turtle, you know, because he keeps outgrowing his environment, and we want him to be in a good habitat. And the kids are learning about habitats, and they're yeah. thoughtful people, and they want to make sure he's comfortable and all of this other stuff. So we have decided that we are going to transition. His name is Dr. Cornell West, by the way. <laughs> um, we have decided that we're going to transition Dr. West from the aquarium that he's in to a temporary summertime outside habitat. And so we're sort of like problem solving about how to do that. Um, and it's so funny to watch the students problem solve around this and how, like, um, they come up with really great ideas and they come up with really wacky ideas. Mm -hmm. um, but how, like, we have kind of learned as a class to approach things, like, from the perspective that, like, um, someone might say something that immediately inspires, like, an answer. And it might be the perfect answer and it might be what we go with. But if you can, like, 
hold on to your enthusiasm for that answer that you have within you and also like stay open to the possibility that there might be something even more excellent out there that you might discover or someone else might discover. Um, that's an even better idea or maybe like even just fits a little bit better with like the parameters in which we're working. Like so much amazing stuff can happen. But if you're in a position where you're constantly like defending your position and your power and the decisions that you make and you're in the structure that's very rigid and you have no choice but to kind of like say whatever comes to you and then defend it <laughs> vehemently and, you know, sort of beat back everyone else, it's just like um, a terrible way to make decisions or do work. Um, it's not a very good way to get anything done. And this is kind of my thought about the way that we have approached problem solving in the for-profit and non-profit and public sector is if your stated aim is to make money or have power, right, you're not going to be very good at doing something that's not that. So, for instance, education is a great example. If the goal of education is to, like, and, of course, there's some debate about this, but if the goal of education is to you know, uh, have like um, a population of people who are ready to participate in democracy and, you know, hold down jobs and like all of this other stuff, like you're not going to get there if your goal is to make money, right? You can't be like, well, I'm like a for-profit institution and my goal is to make money and somehow that's like that being my goal and my direction is going to lead me to like educating people mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, preparing them for a democracy, like, it's just not going to work. And I think that that's one of the, like, sort of confusing things about capitalism and, and honestly, even the nonprofit sector, because it, it's, the goal of nonprofits is identical to the goal of for-profits, which is to stay in the black, right? Uh, the only difference is the, a charitable purpose. But other than that, they're the same thing. And so if your goal is to stay in the black, you're not going to achieve what other you know, other aim you have about ending homelessness or whatever, because like your goal is to stay in the black. Your goal is to make money. Uh, so many questions. Uh, one thing about the, the organizing around work in your classroom or anywhere, it, mm. it, I, I tell this joke to my sister. It's like, I love collaboration when I am running them. Right. It's kind of a, because uh, <laughs> yes. I, I feel like I truly value people and I would, I would really work to make sure people on teams were hurt. But, um, this idea of a flat organization and everything, it seems like you're running your classroom and you can make it happen. And you've got that sensibility. Mm. So it's kind of a weird combination of like, um, mm -hmm. the collaboration works if I'm running it. Do, like, how do you? Yeah. <laughs> you're asking the hard question. No, but that's perfect. That's perfect, right? Because there is a hierarchy. Because I'm the teacher, right? And I give grades, even though I don't like to. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, like I'm in charge and I can get people in trouble and I navigate things and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that, like, um, this is something I discovered, too, um, and that um, was, like, very clearly explained to me um, by some, like, practitioners of consensus who are like old school that I like learned about consensus during Occupy. That was like really my first time um, getting involved in it. And what's funny about that is that when I was at college, I was really interested in like invigorating our student government. Um, I was like super passionate about it. I couldn't believe that the same people like running for positions were the ones counting the ballots. And I was like, Oh my God, this is terrible. We need to like build up this democracy. And I was like, I went about it 
totally the wrong way. I came in like everyone's doing everything wrong and my idea is right, blah, 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 blah. And so I like did all this stuff to get people voting and, you know, create like a clear and transparent process and all of this other stuff. And I was super into things like Robert's Rules of Order. <laughs> and my friend um, ended up running uh, several years after this. So things are invigorated. People are participating in democracy. People are showing up to meetings. We're like allocating money. We're finding out where other money is going. It's supposed to be to us. All this stuff's great. And my friend York shows up and he's like, hey, I've been learning about this thing called consensus. Sounds super sweet. Like I want to do it. And I was like, no way. I like resisted consensus all the way. I was like, this is a terrible idea. I hate it. I hate everything about it. We have a system that works. Why would we change it? Blah, 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 blah. And like, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this. There was a situation where I wasn't present and um, they decided, I think, to use consensus to like fund a bunch of student projects. And I ended up quitting the student union that I was I mean, I'm not going to put on airs, but I basically built up from scratch. I ended up quitting the student union over this because my feeling was that it was so unfair because we hadn't, like, told people that this was how it was going to go and that everyone's projects were going to get funded. So there were Uh people who didn't apply because they knew that they didn't fit in the old parameters, and Mm -hmm. so they just didn't apply it at all. And then there were people who didn't fit in the parameters but, like, went to this meeting and got funded just kind of by luck. And I was like, this is so unfair. I have to quit on principle. Like, created this terrible rift. I'm very embarrassed about it. And Mm -hmm. it was completely the wrong thing to do. Um, And then years later, when I finally, like, (laughs) had to use consensus in, like, a real-world setting because, you know, we thought the revolution was coming. It seemed really important. Um, And I was like, wait, this is brilliant. Oh, my God. I can't believe I fought against this so hard. And I was so opposed to it. And so, like, I convinced other people that it was a bad idea. I just, uh, it's so humbling to think about, like, the things that you once felt really passionate about when you're just... Totally wrong, like just misinformed and just like, and maybe actually informed, but just like ignoring the fact. Mm-hmm. But um, so, oh God, I'm so embarrassed about that. I, wherever you are, York, I'm really sorry. Right. <laughs> you, um, you, you, the record is now clear. Right. You have been you've forgiven of all sins. You. <laughs> Basically, what I learned is um, from these great practitioners of of consensus who've been doing it for a really really long time is that it's all about, like, um, kind of, like, scale and scope. So there are some things where it's just, like, not appropriate to use consensus or where you don't need to use consensus with a whole group. Like, the thing about other, a lot of other systems is that they kind of preclude using any other system. But with consensus, you can use the other systems, too. And it's okay to have someone, like it is okay to have, like, hierarchy within that, too. So, like, there are situations where, like, like we have to kind of have a – I mean, I would love to be in a classroom where this wasn't the case, but for, like, fifth graders, it is important to have someone who is in charge who's going to make sure that, like, people are using scissors appropriately and that, like, everyone is safe and that, you know, um, I feel like a school context is maybe a place where there's like a lot of opportunities to use true consensus with the students. And there's a lot of places where it would be unsafe or inappropriate to do so. And I don't think there's anything like to me, you're not like losing the point by saying that, you know, Mm -hmm. like they're like organizing around work. Like 
It's great. And there are going to be um, different situations that require very different things. And there's going to be people who are, who are better suited to take the lead, you know? And I think that like a struggle comes in when we feel like we have to defend so intensely whatever system we're using mm-hmm. and we have to be pure about how we're using it. And that's just not very, like as human beings, the thing that has made us the most successful as a species is our ability to adapt and to like use lots of different methods and to eat lots of different foods and to, you know, it's all about the diversity of experience and being able to like metabolize diverse experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, that is like anthropologically sound to make that statement. And so I think, um, I think that like the fact that I am the teacher in my classroom and that is a role that exists on a hierarchy doesn't take away from the fact that we can do a lot of things collaboratively and that my students are learning about consensus in a real way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm laughing because you like see... contradictions aren't. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Well, uh, basically you, you seem to say, Oh, that was a hard question, but I think you handled it like completely and understandably. So that really wasn't a hard question. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded hard at first. But also, like, this is a giant problem that I don't know what I'm going to say until I say it. um, And this is true for students, too. This is true for students where they don't know if they have the answer until they start talking. And sometimes they start talking and they they discover after several minutes, and this happens to me, too, which is bad, where you're just like, oh, I've been talking for a long time, and I don't have the answer. (laughs) And that's okay, too. (laughs) You mentioned... uh Occupy and uh, one one thread that goes through your discussions of like Robert's rules or uh, like kind of leadership styles is it seems to me you've you've read some books is that a fair statement like I have read some books yeah and is does any do any books come to mind that that were meaningful to you as resources when you like how you, how you go about specifically around like consensus or um, just in general. I'm going to ask you about book recommendations in the end, by the way, just general. Like, uh, but uh, okay. right now, I'm, I'm curious. I, I get curious how people research the things that they're doing. Like, how do you – so at one point, you were saying, like, how do people organize around these issues? And mm-hmm. then then you went and you you went to a library or something. Like, what did you do to, to gain this knowledge? Mm. So actually, I do love to read, and I learn a lot from books. But I think a lot of the, like, practical skills that I feel like I've garnered over the last several years were actually through horrible trial and error. <laughs> and, um, I mean, like, I feel like the student union example is so, like, it's such a salient example because mm-hmm. it was like, I fought so hard against something that was a really good idea. And it was only in retrospect that I realized that. Um, but I think a lot of it was through practice. Like I said, like, I, I don't know if I've ever read anything about consensus. Um, but I have, like, uh, I have talked to a lot of people who have practiced consensus for a long time um, and I've been doing it for a lot of years mm-hmm. and I think like when I, when Occupy started I, I I wanted to go to a direct action meeting and I missed I got the time wrong I went to the wrong meeting and it was a facilitation <laughs> meeting and so they were like people who were like going to facilitate all the general assemblies and I just I went to the wrong I was there to like protest and I was like oh alright well I mean I, I can do this too I guess <laughs> And it totally changed my life. 
um, and <laughs> like in a really meaningful way. Um, and that was the first time that I participated in consensus. So the whole idea of like a progressive stack and the idea that you could have like a thousand people and that you guys could collectively make decisions, which was like completely mind blowing. I was like, I don't know, but all right, you know, we'll just see if, it, and it worked. It was amazing to watch it, to watch it work. And so, you know, um, strangely, there weren't a lot of people that wanted to facilitate, <laughs> um, which I didn't want to facilitate. I just happened to be there. But um, it was really interesting to see, like, how important facilitation was to what we were trying to do, trying to accomplish, and how, like, how it has kind of like rippled out since Occupy. Um, you know, so we're, we're no longer occupying like Grand Circus Park or anything like that mm-hmm. in several years. But now there are organizations that use facilitators that maybe never used to or use consensus-based decision-making that never used to. And to me, that is like such a, an incredibly invaluable part of what came out of Occupy was like, not just the sense that you could make big decisions and small decisions <laughs> mm-hmm. using like with a large group of people where, you know, uh, more than just the majority were happy with what was happening. Um, but that there were actually steps to that and like there are practices involved and you can learn them uh, and you can teach them to other people. And since Occupy, I have like several times like sat down with different people at different organizations who are like, hey, can you teach me about facilitating? And I like went back through all the, you know, things that we put together for Occupy and all the hand signs and, uh, you know, philosophies and all of that stuff and like um, kind of like re um, revisited those and, and passed them on too. I guess you were asking about books. I haven't really read any books, but there's a lot of just like, there's a lot of great YouTube videos that came Mm -hmm. out of Occupy, and um, there are a lot of great like resources that people have made um, that just sort of explain them. So, yeah. Um, And and, uh, about abortion, Mm -hmm. I know that one challenging group you've had to deal with is the the protesters outside uh, an abortion Mm -hmm. clinic. So here's, here's a question for you. If there was a group, um, and what they did is they got pro-life people and pro-choice people to collaborate, and what they would do is they would work with women who chose to have their babies, um, mm-hmm. but if they had challenges like financial challenges or whatever, like this collaboration would help those women. Do you think you would be... Yeah, you've you've already got too much to do, but I mean, just theoretically. No, no, no I can this... always think I'm more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know There's that this group. To do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that this group exists, but if it did, is that something that would interest you? Totally. Or do you think it's a good? Okay, totally. Okay. No, totally, because I feel like an aspect of being pro-choice is the understanding that there are women who choose to terminate a pregnancy, who in other circumstances would carry their pregnancy to term and have a child, but don't because of longstanding systems of oppression, right? So barriers to financial stability that, um, you know, go back generations and generations and generations um, that specifically target, um, for instance, like, you know, poor people and black and brown communities and immigrant communities where, like, I believe in a woman's right to choose or a person's right to choose what happens with their body, right? And so, and to decide when it's time 
to start a family and when it's not and all of that stuff and like totally defer to that person. And I know that there are people who have to make a difficult choice to terminate a pregnancy who, if we addressed other societal ills like, you know, white supremacy and, um, and issues around like class and things like that, like would make a different choice. And so I can't like be very authentically pro-choice if I just kind of ignore that part um, and try to like simplify it or reduce it down to just, you know, this or that. Um, and so like as someone who's pro-choice, I also want to address all of those other things. And so that's kind of what um, Kimberly Crenshaw um, like came up with the idea of like intersectionality and how all these different like intersecting um, oppressions and struggles like relate to one another. And you can't really like work on one thing without acknowledging and working on another. And so, yeah, I would totally do that. I think the challenge for me would be um, <clears throat> working with people who um, are like behaving in a way that, um, that according to my analysis is like destructive um, in another area. So like, even if in this group we're like doing this great work and doing something that I think is really important, um, I think it would be hard for me, especially with someone that presumably I would like build a relationship with, because when you're doing work together, you're like building relationships and like getting to know each other in a different way. It'd be hard for me not to, um, to like con confront, I guess, um, someone who, even if the work they're doing with me is like really positive, um, who's doing something destructive in another uh, area of their lives, it would be probably impossible for me not to confront that person. And this is something that, like, I have to just figure out in myself anyway because <laughs> I don't know if it's actually the best tactic. Um, but I think that there there are places where it's really appropriate. So, for instance, like, if you have a coworker who is really great but who, you know, has, like, sexually assaulted someone, like, even if the work you're doing has nothing to do with that, like it wouldn't really be possible to continue working with that person in whatever regard you work with them without confronting them about that. Right. Um, I suppose, although that seems different to me with okay. pro-life and pro-choice. Um, are they just pro-life or are they like pro-life like protesters? Yeah, actually uh, I'm not uh, in my little made up story. Um, yeah. What's harder for you to? <laughs> it would no, be hard. If, they, if they were protesters, it would be a lot harder for me. If it was just someone who like held the personal belief that like abortion is like morally wrong or something, mm -hmm. I think that would be really different than yeah. someone who like act. Although I've thought, so I've thought about this. I think I told you about this, but like I have this like fantasy in my head of being able <laughs> yeah, to like yeah. shoot down with some anti-choice protesters and be like, hey. This isn't working for you, obviously, because you're <laughs> trying to talk to people who've already made their decision. It's certainly not working for us because, you know, you're annoying and you're making people feel bad for no reason. But, like, what if we, you know, during our intake process, if we found somebody who seemed like maybe what they actually wanted was, you know, financial support to start their family, if we could connect those people with you and you wouldn't have to just, like, sit outside the clinic trying to, like, find those people by yourself because you won't. <laughs> um, and I've thought about how, like, that would be great. Um, that seems like a really good idea. Uh, yeah, yeah, it seems like a great idea during your intake. That, huh. um, Well, we do that during our intake. So that's part of what we do is, like, we have to determine if people are there of their own accord right? If there's any question about that, like, we will not perform an abortion procedure, like, 
we have to make sure that this is like what they actually want to do, that they've been availed of, you know, their other options and they have other resources and that they've had time to think about it, all of that other stuff. Like that is, I essentially, I guess what this conversation with the anti-choice protesters would look like is like letting them know that they should maybe just like let the people who are trained to make these interventions make them, uh, which is what we do. And then like, you know, should there be someone who's like, you know, I'm looking for resources for this, like, I want to start my family, whatever, then we could, like, contact them or whatever. But that would require a, a level of trust that I don't think they have in us. And it would also require them to actually be out there for that reason. And so this is where I get messed up. It's like many of the people that I've interacted with yeah, who are anti-choice yeah. protesters are not actually there, as far as I can tell. They're not actually there because they are concerned about um, you know, uh, someone making a bad choice that they'll regret or they're concerned about, um, you know, uh, a, a fetus actually being like a person who should have the same rights as someone who is like walking around in the world or whatever. Like it, it doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with this like um, extreme satisfaction that comes from a sense of moral superiority. Um, and that like, that is harder to work with. But if someone like legit is just like, I guess, you know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I got the picture. Um, I'll just do one last follow up on this. The person that is protesting that mm-hmm. might uh, just feel morally superior and is, is meeting some other emotional need, let's say, by mm-hmm. protesting. If they were able to control their behavior in the controlled setting of this collaboration, mm-hmm. uh, but they, um, I don't know what that would mean uh, for their, their other protest activities, but they're mm-hmm. able to, to control it for the engagement. You were saying that that would be difficult for you, um, difficult or impossible. Like, where is it? Gosh, I think that it would be difficult. It depends because there are people whose like stated aim, like we interact with this group called Operation Rescue, and their stated aim is to kill abortion providers. The mental gymnastics required to understand a group that believes that um, uh, fetuses <laughs> are so pause, valuable. Like... <laughs> yes, exactly. That fetuses are so valuable and like um, so in need of their protection that they're willing to murder living human beings. Um, in order to protect them, like that is, that would be, uh, yeah, I mean, anyway, that that would be tough. Um, But I think like, I think in order to be part of any group, what's required is like a level of understanding and a level of trust. And so I think that you can achieve that across like differences of like political belief. Um, And I also think that like, for me personally, I I struggle to participate in a group where, um, like, it's important to me that I hold people accountable who are in power, who are using their power to harm other people. So there's lots of ways to look at that, and I I try to look at it in all the different ways, but um, I... And maybe this is, like, selfish, too, to be like, I can't work with you unless you meet my, like, criteria and you pass this Mm -hmm. rubric and whatever. Like, um, 
but I feel like part of my responsibility as someone who like has like a level of privilege is to use that um, to like call people out and to speak truth to people. And especially if I have access to a group that um, is, you know, harming another group of people and that group doesn't have access to them, or even if they do, like, I feel like that's like an important part of my job as like a person on the planet. And it's not always very fun. <laughs> and um, I, um, it makes me like this thing happens in my body when I have to do this, where like my heart raises and I get super sweaty and like really scared and my voice shakes and it's like physically very unpleasant. Um, but uh, I feel like that's my responsibility. That's part of my job. Um, and that's part of like the contract that I have with myself. And so I think like in that group, eventually we would have to like get to know each other, right? If we're going to do work and we're, we would have to like trust each other and um, we would, and that's all like, those are all really good things, but like, I wonder, I mean, we'll be, it's, it's really hard to say, <laughs> but I would, yeah, I think like when I think about it and I don't know what it would be like in real life, I imagine there'd be more feelings involved. But when I think about it, like intellectually, I feel like that's the place where I'm like, struggling a little bit is like how do you how would I um show up honestly um in a space where I'm with people who don't think that I should have bodily autonomy you know or who think that I am like not capable because I could bear children, you know? And so like mm -hmm. just the simple fact of my like biology makes me incapable of like making decisions or like not as capable as them, you know? Mm -hmm. What if, um, what if they're not thinking that thought? They're just kind of, they're, they're blinded by this, um, powerful, uh, kind of moral imperative that, um, that makes them. They're not. They're not. They're not really thinking about from from the angle you just talked about, um, and and what you've decided is not that you're going to trust them on all levels, and not that mm. you're even going to agree. But for this, for the finite purposes of a set of goals, you're going to do this work with them. Is there something that is productive about this engage it's almost like making a treaty with iran you know like for nuclear mm -hmm. weapons you know you have a you have a don't trust and verify or whatever you know mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. would that would that function as an operating principle for doing something like this yeah well i guess it'd be sort of like organizing around the work instead of organizing around ah, like the yeah. values like if there was work to do and we could do that work together and these weren't like part of people part of operation rescue then yeah I think, like, <laughs> I think that that's often what happens when there's, like, a natural disaster or something, um, yeah. is that people start organizing around the work, and they really just don't. Like, it's not even that maybe they don't care. It's just, like, that's not what's, for, like, at the forefront of your mind when you're, like, when you're responding to something. Um, it's interesting when people, like, uh, talk about, um, like, our, our quote-unquote, like, natural responses to things. And I think a lot of times they want to... Um, 
sort of describe that as being like, uh, like bad, like our base nature is like bad or whatever. But I think honestly, like if you look at the way that people respond to like natural disasters, for instance, like they do so generously and like comprehensively and no one's like, well, I mean, the state does this in a way that's really terrible, but actual individual people, I think we tap into this deeper understanding that we have as human beings where like cooperation leads to survival, you know, and, um, Mm -hmm. and that, um, that we are sort of stronger together as a group if we work together and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I think that organizing around work opens up a lot of, um, of opportunities in terms of like getting past the other stuff. Is there a book that I know we talked about Lord of the Rings actually, but um, books that uh, had a big impact on you and helped shape your view of the world? Yeah, my favorite book in fifth grade, which actually I give out to my students on their birthdays, um, is Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry by Mildred Taylor. Um, and every kid who goes through my class gets a copy of this book. And I always write in it about how it was my favorite book when I was in fifth grade and how I've read it like 50 times. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, sometimes I'll write about how like they remind me of one of the characters or, um, you know, something like that. But yeah, that book was very formative um, and really important to me and continues to be. Yeah. A- any other you want to lob in there? Got so many books. Um, fourteen ninety one is really good. That's a that's a nonfiction book. Fourteen ninety one, um, kind of like the pre Columbus kind of deal. Yeah, that's the, it's okay. super good. Very eye opening. Um, yeah. Asada by Asada Shakur really changed my life. Like mm-hmm. I, <laughs> yes. Have you read that book? No. If you haven't, so, you should read it. Okay. Gonna. I think honestly. Um, it's really hard to understand. So like uh, a product of having privilege is that it's invisible to you. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think it can be really, really hard sometimes to like believe people who are um, part of like a marginalized group or like a historically oppressed group um, or not even like not believe in Like I think a lot of people believe what they hear, but they it's not all the way real to them. And I think Asada is a great way to like make it real in a sense. Like plus this woman writes about this like incredibly dark, painful material, this like very real oppression that she's experiencing. I mean, most of the books she's in like a male prison. Um, But she also has these poems that are just like these shafts of light, like shooting out of this book. Like, yeah, you should read that book. It's really good. And then um, <laughs> Fulan Devi, uh, the bandit queen of India, very similar to Asada. I don't think there'd be so many uh, nonfiction in here, but there's a lot. Um, I'm trying to remember my like fiction books that were really important. Sewer, Gas, and Electric is really good. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh have you ever read that book? No. So good. Okay, I could keep going forever, but those are the first ones that popped into my head. <laughs> um, thank you on behalf of all humanity. <laughs> <laughs> thank 
you had me have a ball humanity. <laughs> well, I think that was a great way to like end conversations with all people. <laughs> I'm gonna start. I'm gonna employ that uh, this week, and I'll okay. let you know how it goes. Thank you on behalf of all humanity. Thank you on behalf of all humanity. <laughs> I feel that a lot of the time, but I don't say it. So I'm gonna start saying it. That was episode seven. And you've met Emma. To meet more new people, subscribe to Like You. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.